Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Erie, Tim Stafford. Welcome. And hopefully Jesus of Nazareth will make an appearance later in the show. <laughs> Our Palestinian friend. Yes, he has. Uh, we've tried to book him several times, but he says only the Father knows when he's available. So we'll see. Um, I don't know. i got to ask my dad. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Otherwise, we're waiting on a response from our dear friend Ellen, who um, who sent me a quick message. She said, "I'm just finished the episode. I have thoughts." <laughs> so we're 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 not saying a word. She gets the last word. So for those of you staying tuned, uh, Ellen Ellen still gets the last word. We don't know when that word will be, but she gets it. I love it, that she's just kind of this mystery. Yeah. Like, we don't know her. She's just kind of this... She's Ellen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and thoughtful Ellen is what we'll call her. And um, anyway, I just thought it was awesome. And so, so I mean, and, and the side of a great question or a great <laughs> series of questions is how much conversation it instigates. And uh, so compliments to you. Uh, I, have a, I have a large number of people to thank. Um, oh. Maybe who came into Ellen's defense by becoming Patreon supporters this week. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, but I, I want to just say thank you, as always. Yeah. I mean, and it's so <laughs> it's so important um, to appreciate these people because of all the things that they could do with money. The fact that they choose to, to help support this just means the world to us. Um, and so Cynthia... And Adam and Amy spelled A M I E, which is maybe the coolest spelling of Amy I've ever seen. Aaron, and then a friend. All right, I got to tell you about this friend. Her name's Terry. When I graduated college years and years ago, I went into investment banking, <laughs> and um, and I was there. I don't know two or three years, and uh, I got I don't know roped in to being a youth pastor out of that. I had no designs ever of working for a church or doing what is classically called ministry. Um, but I had just, you know, fallen uh, for these high school students and all their questions. And I don't know. And Terry and Dave, her husband, were a couple who became family to me and mentors in what it meant to pastor. So I'm, I'm a 24-year-old kid. I have a finance degree. I've been selling investment tools. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm a steward of dozens of junior high and high school kids. And they, uh, in kindness, adopted me. And, um, and so it's so fun. I saw her name, and I was just like, oh, Terry Q, what we call Where her. was this? This was in Oxford, Ohio. This So I went to school at Miami, which is in Oxford, Ohio, uh, in the middle of nowhere, town of 15,000. I came back to Oxford when I was promoted in an investment banking world because there was a branch of this in Oxford. And then I uh, got wooed by the, the leadership of this church. Um, and uh, the rest is, as they say, is history. So anyway... I just saw Terry Terry Q's name, and so shout out. Hi, Terry. Hi, Terry. Thank you, Terry. I, I have this whole, like, this whole, I, 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 maybe I was just fortunate or blessed or whatever, 
but I was nurtured in this womb of real authentic Jesus people, hmm. particularly when I was first introduced to the the vocational aspects of this thing. Yeah. And this this small tribe uh, adopted me and raised me. And um, and so I've seen the power of what a church can do in the life, yeah. in somebody's life, when is it's good and there? healthy. It is. It is. It is. And um, and so it's just, you know, anyway, Terry, we don't need to go off on this, but it was, um, <laughs> I've seen the harm a church can do, but my goodness, I've seen the good. And this well, was the it's like, good, you know, dude. I know you don't like talking about yourself, but I think it's interesting, too, because think about how many years you've been doing ministry now yeah and that's such a that's such a specific pivot point oh like being an investment baker and then having someone be like hey why don't you come uh <laughs> talk to these high school kids like what did a what a very specific i mean that's like a yeah maybe not I don't, I don't know i think i'm gonna do that and you'd probably still be banking oh maybe for, who knows for, well for me it was a money issue i mean i had always just wanted to be wealthy and yeah. Um, I had just gotten a job offer to be an internal wholesaler at this huge bank selling, I think it was bonds or something. And it was, it was like, uh, it was close to six figures with bonuses. And the, the church offered me $17,000 a year <laughs> to be their first youth pastor. And, and, and I had this this <clears throat> moment, and, and I was, you know, I don't know, I was uh, very shockingly, uh, and I say that, you know, fully sarcastically, I was shockingly not super mature in my faith. And so I just, you know, it was one of these people who had a great brain, and I knew a lot, but it, it hadn't soaked in anywhere yet. Yeah. And I had this moment where I had to, I had a weekend to decide between these two opportunities. And I had a moment where I was, I think I was listening to Alice in Chains or it was Pearl Jam or I was something. And I was kind of, I was kind of marginally praying. And uh, there, there was this moment of clarity um, where a verse from Jesus, and I wasn't even like that big into the Bible or whatever, but a verse from Jesus just came like zapping into my soul. And it was <laughs> the, the verse in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve both God and money. Mm. And I just started crying. You know, it's like midnight. I'm listening to Dirt, I think, from Alice in Chains, the album. That'll make you it, cry anyways. Yeah, totally. Down in a hole. I mean, it is the most depressing. <laughs> Grunge was just so positive and uplifting. Um, and, and I just start weeping. Uh, and I can't tell if it's sorrow, joy, whatever. But I, you know, I get up the next day and I tell my boss... Um, and he releases me from the two weeks because he was a member of this church. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know. The, wait, almost... the investment baker boss was a member of the church. Yes. Oh, yes. that's interesting. Yes, and so he promoted me to include this region, and asked me to t take over the Sunday school class he'd been teaching for a while. <laughs> and so, anyway, all that is to say, it's super boring, I know, but for me. That little community was yeah. the place where I got incubated into the way of Jesus. That and Alice in Chains. Oh, and they go together. Man, they go together. So anyway, Terry Spatana, <laughs> awesome. Uh, I don't know if I, it was okay to say her name, but 
Terry Q is what I called her. <laughs> All right, Tim, how are yeah. you? What's happening in Tim's troubled world, in Tim's troubled mind? Is there anything going on? Tim's Troubled Times. <laughs> you know, what did I send you this morning? Oh, I mean, there's boy. always a there's always a ton going on, but uh, today I thought it was pretty funny. It was uh, Greta <laughs> Greta Thunberg. Yes, right. Is that how you say your last name? The little. Um, yep. The Don't little say little. Climate. Don't say climate little. Change. She's not little. Isn't she preteen? Or she's like 15, 16? I don't know what she is. Um, she's a little modern punk is what she is. She rock, yeah. Punk, punk um, rock. She, uh, <laughs> she tweeted this morning, or she retweeted a, a story about how scientists have just found this chemical in plastic that is causing human penises to shrink and sperm levels to lower. And so she's like, I, <laughs> all she wrote was, I expect to see you all at the next climate change rally. (laughs) That's all she said. Well, it's linking the article, but I mean, it was pretty good. But then I saw it again this morning from someone else, a guy talking it through, and he's like, this is is a real thing. Plastic is causing human penises to shrink. So, well, Tim, that is definitely a different spin on Tim's troubled times. And we're just going (laughs) to... We're just going to let you that You know, sit I there. do. I think about the environmental stuff a lot where I feel like that was like one of the first mandates that we were given was like, hey, every every day, and I'm using air quotes of creation, um, God was like, did this? And he's like, yeah, this is pretty good. Like the God who created the universe did each thing is like, this is good. I like this. This is, yeah. I'm, I'm into this. And then he creates man. And he's like, check, what, check this out. You guys take care of this. Be yeah. stewards or whatever. Like a first mandate. And man, Christians are so like, angry about environmental causes it's such a so that does trouble me it troubles me that we don't lead in the um, environmental conversation i i couldn't agree more timothy's troubled heart i couldn't agree more <laughs> and 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 this is one of those areas where i was just raised in american consumption right i mean you just yeah. didn't think about throwing things away and i remember i remember I'm old enough to remember the first sort of recycling programs, and it was such an imposition. Yeah. Oh, just the pain of separating my bottles and you know <laughs> cans out, and um, and it wasn't until man maybe well I don't know I, I when I when I really began to be fascinated by the earliest chapters in Genesis, yeah. that I realized exactly what you're saying. Like we. Why, why, if, how could we not lead the conversation about them? I mean, literally the first command, yeah. fill the earth and subdue it and subdue. Oh, it's a great word. Kabosh. Um, and it means bring it into order. It mm-hmm. has nothing to do with strip mine it or pollute it. And, but see, I was also raised with an eschatology, which is the study of last things in theology. I was raised with an eschatology. You just said the, the creation is going to burn. That right. God's just going to scrap it and start over. Yep. And so you were justified in abusing and using its resources because God was just going to scrap it. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, oh, in Revelation, it's a new heaven and new earth. But new there doesn't mean that God's creating all new things. He's making all things new. And yeah. that's a vastly different conception. Uh, and so I'm just adding a little um, exclamation point to your 
broadening of this to say, my goodness, you're absolutely right. Why? I, I, I just don't. It, it's like, why wouldn't we be on the leading edge of caring for the immigrant when our Bible is saturated with that? Why yeah. wouldn't we be on the leading edge and advocating for peace and nonviolence when our Jesus is saturated with that? Why wouldn't we be on the leading, um, uh, the, the, the foremost voices for creation care when our Bible begins and ends like yeah. it does? You know what I mean? It just, um, yep. and, and, it really, and it, it blows, it really baffles me. Well, and you can just see, you can trace it back to the part, the way these things have become political and they've become political because they're economic. <laughs> There's a theme that's been running through every yes. topic. Yes. And so whether you're not your capitalist or socialist or whateverist, um, you Jesus, it's still true. You cannot serve both God and money. It's just yeah. true. Yeah. Look how all these things connect together. Oh my goodness, it's full circle. Well, speaking of circles, today <laughs> we're gonna talk about wheat and weed. And no, Tim, not the weed you're thinking of. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. We're going to talk about the earth is of the greatest worth. (laughs) The Reverend Saint Marley. (laughs) Is that what he said? Yeah. (laughs) This is a parable um, that Jesus is is gonna is gonna tell, and well, I mean, he told it several thousand years ago, but he's going to retell it here You're on the Vox podcast. that he's about to, this is coming soon. Totally. Sneak but peek. It's, it's, it ties into our conversation about how we're to relate to the world. Yeah. So what we're trying to dismantle um, in some way, the, the Christian nationalist vision of how it is that we are to relate to the world. And, um, and this is a parable that has long fascinated me as a as a as a jesus answer to what do we do with the evil in the world so Mm. tim do you have a reader do we have a reader for this or do you want me to read it all right i'm going to read it all right are you ready i'm ready matthew and this is not the voice of an angel this is the voice of a nasally (laughs) middle-aged this is a voice of a former investment banker (laughs) oh yes um (laughs) So Jesus tells a parable that involves different soils that are receptive to his, the message of the kingdom. And then right after that, he tells another parable. This is a verse 24, Matthew 13. And he doesn't focus on the soils. He focus on, focuses instead on what's grown. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, Jesus, from the previous parable, the good man... Uh, or, or the man is the the son of man, Jesus. Um, sowing seed is the idea of, of scattering seed, and that's the preaching of the kingdom. And the field is the world. All right, so we already have that interpretive framework from the previous parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, a ma- his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads... The weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants then asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may also uproot the wheat with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, he tells two other parables that have to do with small and big. A small pearl is priceless in a net when it's caught, and then a small seed grows to, to into a plant that takes over a field. All of these parables are connected and telling very, very similar stories. But after those two little parables, he then gets asked about, hey, explain the parable of the weeds to us. And Jesus answered, the one who sowed good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned into the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun uh, in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Hold on, my wife is calling. Please keep this in. Hello, Jacina. I am recording, honey. You are on the internet right now. Hi, internet. So what's one thing, what's the best thing about being married to me? Oh, my goodness. I hate it when you put me on the spot. Yeah. Uh, as you would say, you can lift heavy things and reach tall places. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. All right, my love, I'll call you later. Okay, bye, That... When she gets frustrated with me, which is more often than, than I think I would care to admit, I will often say, but honey, who would reach tall things and lift the heavy things? It's like, well, now Nate will. So I'm, I'm in danger. <laughs> I am in danger. <laughs> Whoa. Can you hear that? I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden my, my headphones are blaring blinding light, blinding lights by the weekend. So <laughs> if you can't hear that, that's awesome. So anyway, all right, so there's the parable. And of course, um, these are not images familiar to us because we, of course, are not farmers. But in Roman law... There was a law prohibiting, um, because farmers shockingly would be competitive with each other, particularly they're growing the same crop. And the type of weed that is being sown here, Jesus names it, and it, it's spelled like Darnell, but I know it's not pronounced that way. <laughs> it's D-A-R-N-E-L. Um, I, so I don't know how to pronounce it. It is indistinguishable from wheat until later on in the process. Right, so a key point to the story is until the weeds fully appeared, you had no idea that you were growing false wheat. It's literally called false wheat in your So this field. is a way of sabotaging... Another's harvest. Another's harvest is you go plant these things that grow and look like the wheat. Yes. But takes over and you don't know it until it's fully grown in your kind until of... it's fully grown and then the roots are intertwined yeah. so you can't pull the weeds without harming the wheat yeah, okay yeah, yeah. that's the genius that's the <laughs> genius setup here is that it's it, it's indecipherable 
um, up until it, it's, it begins to mature, all right? Now, at some point, you can tell the difference and then you can pull the roots. But Jesus is talking about that phase where you're just now realizing, oh, and you can't, if you yank the weeds out, it could harm the wheat also, all right? Yeah. Now, again, this would have been stock imagery, but that little nuance is so important. And so the, the, the farmers have two questions, naturally. And the parable really hinges on the two answers the master gives, all right? First question is, well, where did the weeds come from? And Jesus, of course, says, through the master, an enemy did this. And then the second question, do you want us to go and pull them up? And Jesus replies, no, you may uproot the wheat. Let them grow together until harvest. Mm. Right? Mm. You see where this sucker's headed. Right? It's beautiful. Now, (laughs) just a bit of background. There, there are lots of different guesses about, you know, when Matthew wrote this down and wrote it to his communities, you know, I don't know, 30 or 40 years later, is, is and, and some in the very early church thought this was about false people in the church or um, false or true Jews, Jews that had turned to Christ versus Jews that had not and rejected him. I tend to so there are, there are interpretations that read it that way. Um, there there's also a bit of um, speculation that Jesus is addressing um, the mechanics of the kingdom to answer the objections that are sure to come because it's coming unexpectedly. Okay, so um, for instance, and and I know this will be very you know very exciting for our listeners. Um, I want to, I want to read a section from, uh, the Psalms of Solomon. All right. Now this is not the Psalms. These are apocryphal books. Um, and, uh, for reasons we don't need to get into, but they reflect some Jewish thinking of the time, not all, but some. So this is the Psalms of Solomon 17. The Messiah is expected to quote, purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles. All right, so purge the Gentiles from Jerusalem, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, the land, to smash the arrogance of sinners, to destroy the unlawful nations. At the at his warning, the nations will flee from his presence. He will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. He will gather holy people whom he will lead in righteousness. He will not tolerate unrighteousness, um, even to pause among them. The alien, the foreigner will no longer live near them. There will be no unrighteousness. So the Messiah was was coming to purge. And even John the Baptist gives this kind of hints at this kind of imagery when he first announces Jesus, like the winnowing fork baby is coming and it's going to, it's going to shift or what is it? Sift, excuse me, the wheat from um, the chaff, right? uh, The kernels from the chaff of wheat. Thank you. And, um, and so there's a great winnowing that's coming because the Messiah is on hand. All right. That's, that was one. And then, and then fourth Ezra, all right. Another apocryphal book for the evil about which you ask me has been sown, but the harvest of it has not yet come. In other words, the, the text goes on to say that reaping must occur and the place where evil has been sown must pass away before the good can come. 
So these both indicate there's a, a winnowing. There's a harvesting that has to take place first. That that's right. the first thing the Messiah is going to do. So some think what Jesus is doing here is answering the objection. Well, if you're really the Messiah, then why isn't all of this stuff happening? Why isn't there this great why isn't there this great dividing of the righteous and the unrighteous? Why right. why aren't you purging uh, the sinners from Israel, which is what the, the Pharisees wanted to do? Or the why aren't you purging the violence against Rome, which is what you know the early advocates of zealotry wanted to do? Um, why isn't there this thing happening? And some think it's tied into what you know John the Baptist was had questions about about why Jesus's ministry didn't look like what he'd anticipated it to be. And so the expectation was the Messiah would separate the wheat from the chaff and establish a pure community. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so perhaps that's the backdrop. That's my best guess as to what Jesus is addressing. Um, because in these parables, uh, he seems to be dealing with why, why, why isn't all of Israel acknowledging you as Messiah? And in, in, and, um, and he's, he's, his answers are things like, well, some hearts are hard. Some receive it initially, but will fall away. There's an enemy that actually steals the seed. Um, in the later parables, he'll talk about, well, it's the kingdom is, is small. It's, uh, it's unnoticed. It's easily missable. Um, it's invisible and it creeps slowly, right? It's not spectacular. Yeah. But here he seems to give the answer. That no, there is a winnowing, there is a judgment that's coming, but that doesn't happen first. What happens first is the sowing of the seed, the preaching of the message of the kingdom, and then everything grows together until the discernment, the great judgment is to come. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Now, for our purposes... We can, I mean, and we can totally get into the judgment and the blazing furnace and all that stuff, but those are stock apocalyptic images about the end of the age, all right? Um, and, and, and they do matter, but it's not, he's not talking about hell as we classically conceive of it. That's, yeah. That can be a separate conversation if you want to talk more about that. The bigger thing that Jesus is advocating here is first, and, and it's in his answers to the two questions. Hey, why, why are there weeds in the world? And then notice Jesus' answer, an enemy did this. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there's another agent active in the field than just God. Yeah. So, so there are things that are happening. And again, just another nail in the coffin of those who see the world as under God's meticulous control. Right. right. Um, that, that no, for Jesus... There is an an enemy that is not an equal, but certainly is an opposite, yeah. um, who is at work sowing division and lust and pride and murder, and we're willing participants. I mean, this isn't, you know, the the beauty of the Bible and its its um, portrayal of evil is that yes, there are things bigger than just the sum of human evil at work, right. but but we love evil. I mean, the, the, the gossipy morsel, the lust, uh, the gluttony, the, um, uh, the, the desire to hoard, like, like we're, we're they're all such self-serving. They're all 
directional yes. at yourself, lust yes. about pleasing yourself, gluttony about you know, anger or, when like, my will is violated. All of that, which is great coming off the Sermon on the Mount, where it's like it's all neighbor. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's a beautiful picture that not everything going on in the world is the work of God. Right. Well, that that's so freaking important, man. Yeah. Because we just have we have some ding dongs, um, <laughs> you know, who are walking around saying all of this evil is done for God's glory, and you're like, that couldn't be the, you could not pervert the truth more than that, in my view. Now I realize yeah. there's some great brothers and sisters who think this way, and I I so I love them and respect them, and some of them are super super incredible scholars. And so I'm not nearly on their level, but um, but I, I have such intuitive and I think exegetical grounds for saying, I just don't see that's how it works. Yeah. So I think that's always important to underscore. There is another, there's another agent at work in the field with whom we willingly partner, all right? Yeah. So the second question, and this is the question about Christian nationalism. <laughs> well, do you want us to do you want us to pull up the weeds now? Right. Do you want us to do the judging now? You want us to do the harvesting now? You want us to to separate the wheat and the chaff now, baby? Because we're ready, right? And Jesus's yeah. answer, and it's so important to distinguish this right here. Jesus's answer isn't passivity. Okay, Jesus resists evil. He transforms evil. He resists it. He fights against it. He heals its after effects. He, he is, Jesus is never passive, ever. Even in his crucifixion, he says, dude, I could bring down 72,000 freaking angels. You know, I give my life because I give it. You're not, I'm not being acted upon here. Right. Oh, so he's never passive. But what Jesus advocates instead of passivity is patience. And even though that was a great Guns N' Roses song, it is the very least, <laughs> very least of my favorite attributes in the world to practice, right? So he says, let them grow together. In other words, you don't know yet because, it, because it's still too early. You don't know the wheat from the weeds. Because the wheat and the weeds often are indiscernible, are indiscernible until they are mature, right? So is the is the fear, or not fear, but is the the warrant to be patient because of harming the crop? Oh, it's both. It's 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 both of harming the. You could harm the crop, but I think, I think implicitly Jesus is also saying you're not good judges of who's crop and who's not right right you're just gonna run out there with your what are the, what's the thing called what, or what's the thing called that the grim reaper has yes your scythe scythe sith <laughs> <laughs> darth reaper has that one <laughs> yeah. um yes 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 so so just this chopping is things down totally now I'm studying this, and then at the same time, I'm reading a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Now, if that title. doesn't ring your bell as an incredible <laughs> title, I can't help you. <laughs> um, 
The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Alan Creeder, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, he is an Anabaptist, a Mennonite, um, PhD, Harvard. Um, and so, so I am always fascinated by how we account for how Christianity, this peasant movement, um, grew when there were so many social disincentives because being a Christian didn't help you with status, honor, or power. It didn't make you wealthy. In fact, it brought you under suspicion. Um, you were gossiped about. You were lied about. Um, later on the empire, of course, you you were in danger of being martyred and persecuted. Yeah. Um, you were not advantaged in any way, shape, or form by calling yourself Christian. Now, Roman religion was infinitely tolerant. As long as you acknowledge the deity of Roma, the city and its emperor, you could worship any damn thing you wanted. Right. And the only exception to that I know of was the Jews. Um, and so as long as Christianity was thought to be another Jewish sect, it was given the protections afforded the Jews. Hmm. But when the Jews and the Christians started disagreeing, um, it, it became, any, whether or not you know this was helped along by the opponents of Christianity or not, um, the 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 empire realized we're dealing with a separate thing here and um and then then a persecution very much became uh, it went from being sort of wide um uh, you know far reaching and and widespread to being much more systematic and intentional you know at first it was just ad hoc and we have uh roman correspondence between different leaders about how do we deal with Christians. And it's all, it's all, I find all of that super fascinating. Yeah. And there are different answers. Um, a guy named Rodney Stark wrote a really called The Rise of Christianity, an incredible book um, that just talks about the sociology of the Christian religion. Um, the fact oh, that, that women and slaves were permitted and just how many women and slaves were out there. Yeah. Uh, the fact that they adopted. Um, infants that were left out to die mm -hmm. and then catechized them into new families. So he's playing, He's it's interesting, he's playing a numbers game. There's another take um, that had to do with exorcisms. Christianizing the Roman Empire, I think, is the name of that one. And it, and it was that the, that the Christians displayed um, power in ways that were unique in Rome to mm -hmm. exorcise demons and to heal this book, so so the ferment, his the ferment, and I don't know fermentation. All of our craft beer brewers will know this, but <laughs> evidently fermentation is slow and exorable and hidden, just like the kingdom is, slow and exorable and hidden. Yeah, and the early church grew in that way because, and his argument is number one, first and foremost, they were patient. They the whole church, in fact. He quotes extensively from, I think it's three or four different treatises from the early church writers on, on patience. And, um, and, and he, and it's, I'm halfway through it. It's a thick, thick read, but I just want to read some of his conclusions. Um, because if what Jesus is teaching us is not passivity in the presence of evil, but patience in mm. the presence of evil then um, 
this really dovetails the dovetails really incredibly into the material this guy's going over. All right, so let me just let me just go through kind of quickly some of the things he's arguing. And again, I haven't finished it, so maybe he says it better or I'm misunderstanding him or something. But first, that that and fundamentally, because God's people were rooted in patience, that God was at work, it was slow and exorable, right, and hidden. Uh, they did not have to control events. They did not have to be anxious or in a hurry. And they were, they never had to use force. Okay. Yeah. No, just take that. You just take that lifestyle away from the book and you're like, well, how much of our Christianity is already <laughs> ruled out? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so they would argue from the patience of God. I mean, and Paul even hints at this in Romans. He's like, dude, or, or uh, no, no, no. It was Paul's speech in Athens. He's like, now, um, to the Athenians, he says, now God is calling the nations everywhere to repent. Although, you know, for generations, he's left the sins of the nations. He, he's let them go unpunished. Um, uh, we, or Paul talks about it like in the fullness of time, Jesus was sent. Or even in the Old Testament, it was like the sin of the Canaanites hadn't reached its full time. It was 400 years yeah. of rebellion. I mean, so there's this like super long view that God has that we just simply don't have. So they root and, and they write about the most important Christian virtue was patience, which yeah. is so interesting. Um, and so it's rooted in God's character. But secondly, when you look at Jesus, okay, think about how patient Jesus was. He was, he was, he kept a low profile super humble beginnings and and most of his life wasn't even in the spotlight for crying out loud we have one anecdote from before he's 30 right i mean that's crazy right he bore insult and mockery without returning them in kind he never ever forced or manipulated people he never used rhetorical jujitsu to manipulate he shared a meal with anyone he refrained from calling down angels. He rejected revenge. He healed and forgave the servants and, uh, of his enemies and his enemies themselves. I mean, is there not a greater picture of divine patience yeah. than how Jesus of Nazareth conducted himself while on earth? Then they begin to argue for what patience does in people. Patience is outside. Of, it, it means we refuse to think that things are in our control. Um, So we live, and this is from the book, we live a patient lifestyle, we trust God, and do not manipulate outcomes. I've been a part of church services where we would seed the audience with people who are going to be baptized so that people who might spontaneously be baptized would feel more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, Now we we let people know we were doing that. We didn't hide that. Okay. Um, but yeah, we would have people already baptized who would sit in the, or or who, who were going to be baptized and we knew ahead of time they were going to be baptized. We'd have them sit out there and come forward right? so that, so that if you wanted to, you wouldn't feel like every eye on you. Yeah. But I've, I read of other churches that would plant people and not tell anybody they were planted. All right. And, uh, and then boast about how many there were. So yeah, either way. You're, you're managing outcomes, right? On just such a trivial example, 
I mean, the human, the, the Western church is built on managing outcomes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so patience is not human control. Patience is not in a hurry. It requires people living at the pace given by God, accepting incompleteness and waiting. Yeah. Oh my goodness, dude. That means, think about how we treat each other if, if you, you approach each other from that point of view. I accept your incompleteness, right? I accept my incompleteness, right? I mean, how much of our, how much of our Jesus judging is because we're just looking at a narrow sliver of behavior, but we're not, we don't have the prequel in mind or the sequel in mind or the long view in mind. It's nope. You need to do it now. Here's your three steps. Bam. Uh, Just like build an Ikea furniture, baby. Same steps every time. (laughs) They argue patience is unconventional. And this, again, is from the book. It reconfigures behavior according to Jesus' teaching, especially in three areas. And these are the big ones for America. Wealth, sex, and power. Hmm. If you're patient, you don't always have to get your way. If you're patient, you don't always have to win. And if you're patient, you don't always have to get your desires met. Yeah. Damn. Ooh. I mean, <laughs> they, so, so, and, 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 and so this is the first part of it. the second part of the book is how did you, how did they have communities built so that they nurtured these kinds of people? Yeah. Yep. I was going to ask that. And so they were, you know, so he gets into catechizing and how long it would take for you to even get to be baptized. Yeah. Um, if you were a candidate for baptism, in some cases it was one or two years of scrutiny of your life, of adherence to the teachings of Jesus, you were allowed. Now this is after. So early, the early church, I think, had the very early church had open doors. After Nero persecuted the church in 68, Christians became objects of suspicion and began to close their doors. All right. And so what you would have is if you were a candidate for baptism in that one or two year period, you could only go to the first part of the service, which was the, which was the reading and the preaching. The second part of the service, the Eucharist and prayer, um, was only for people who'd been baptized by that community in that community, unless you had a letter of recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that secrecy, this guy argues, there was a great deal of speculation about what they did, right? So you get accusations right. of cannibalism because they, or sexual orgies because they're sharing a meal in the Roman style or whatever. But also you had this, you had this in, intrigue because the people that were formed in that inner place were formed so differently than the rest of the empire. You know, so so like he reads examples of how people were taught to not press others for, for repayment on loans Mm. because they were patient or to not, um, to not charge interest, um, or to never, to never mock, to bear suffering is something that, um, that honored Jesus to control their emotions, to refuse to create an enemy. And, and the catechizing power 
those early gatherings and the way they they envisioned life together created Christians. And he even makes this point. He says, and I don't know if this is true. I, mean, I just don't, I don't know this area. But he makes a couple of really big statements. He's like, there was no, in, in these early Christian writings, there was no call to evangelize. Right. The Great Commission was thought to have been fulfilled by the 11 apostles and Paul. So that already oh, yeah. happened. Yeah, we did that a little bit with Gombus, right? Yes. Great Commission. Yeah, yeah, that if they ever if they ever quote Matthew 28, it's it's about Trinitarian or baptism yeah. controversies. That's really interesting. Yes. And so there was no, like, we got to go win them, and here's how you win them, and here's what it looks like. Um, it was, it was, it, his argument is it was people. Now this was, this changed in the fourth century. Um, when, when people began to have, because of Constantine, but other factors, people began to have social advantage by becoming Christian. Right. And so then the catechism changes from how do you tell the true church from the not true church? But up until that point, it was, um, it was, I mean, he goes into great detail about how they were taught to see the world. Um, one of the most important things that, that they were taught is that in a world of verticality, ver vertical social relationships, they were brothers and sisters. Hmm. Um, slave and free and rich and poor, male, female, all shared this common table. Uh, that they were taught that patience is never violent um, uh, and, and never seeks revenge. They were taught that, that patience, how about this one, gives religious freedom. It never oh. compels religious belief. But ultimately, you're patient for two reasons. And both of these engender hope, all right? And Paul talks about this in Romans 5. Um, about patience engendering hope. Um, the hope, one, in the resurrection of the dead, that God's good world and the way of Jesus is vindicated in the end. That the nonviolent way of Jesus is vindicated. And then secondly, the reality, the hope of judgment, that the, the truth about the world will be seen so that no one stands there and has excuse. And, um, and, and that was why they could be patient. They could be patient because yeah. God is slowly fermenting the kingdom. It's not up to me to win, build and send a thousand people into the nations. Um, and hallelujah for people who are called to do that. Great. And I know people who do have that absolute gift, but it's fascinating. Uh, and, it, and this is what Gamba was saying, Gambas was saying uh, when he was talking about the great commission episodes ago, that. Um, we evangelized towards converts, um, and they didn't, they, you, you didn't convert to Christianity. Um, you, you forsook your entire way of life and then embraced a new way of life. There was no like intellectual prayer or conversion that took place. This was like, Oh, you're intrigued? Great. Come to the first part of our service. And he even makes this argument, which I found so so challenging to me. He says that the early church never attracted, used their services to attract outsiders. 
And I, and I sit and I think, how much of my church thinking has been built on attracting outsiders? Their church thinking was, how do we build certain kinds of people? My church thinking is, how can we interest people into this movement? Yeah. And so in seeking to in- interest outsiders, you fail to build insiders, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's so counter everything. Um, American culture, American Christianity. And it fits so perfectly in, hey, who did this? An enemy did this. Well, do you want us to roll up our sleeves and get to work and let's let's get the let's get the reaping and sowing done, baby? And yeah, Jesus I was is like about that. What was that conference that just happened a couple of months ago? It was like the Warrior Conference or like the Oh where all the yes. men got together and all the pastors were dressed like bikers, even though that's not <laughs> They were all wearing like leather vests with crosses on them. And that one pastor, the big guy got up there and called everybody P words. And yeah. Yeah. Our nation is led by a bunch of, and not penises. Yeah. Um, And, and, and trying to invoke this like masculine, totally angry, violent uh, version of, of faith to, you know, we need to be these like, right. (laughs) And, and it's, and it's such a perversion. Uh, one of the one of the things that critics dismissed about the church is that so many women and children were welcome. Yeah. Nobody nobody elevated children the way Jesus elevated them socially. And nobody welcomed women that I'm aware of the way that Jesus did. So that the early church had this common table and this common table was the great leveler. There was there was in a in a world of vertical social power structures this now they still resisted that right paul has to deal with that in first corinthians all over the place so it's yeah. not like they were instantly formed into these incredibly mature people but but his argument is that the greatest the greatest um power the early church had was the lives of the people who had been catechized into churches uh, that lived and taught the patience of God and his son, Jesus. And that, that embodied that patience by living normal, ordinary lives, um, but, but had been formed in such a way as to, as to be mockingly, at, at some points, dissimilar from the culture around them, in particular the areas of wealth and sex and power. So that raises all sorts of fascinating questions because here we are talking about wealth and sex and power. And there's this great reckoning that's happening because we've been so poorly formed in these areas that there's the, the, again, to just work in the binary for a second, the conservative and the progressive attitudes towards sex, which seem to have things in common, um, you know, in, in, in terms of um, fundamentalisms that I would, I think Jesus would call into question, you know, and same with wealth um, and same with power. And um, now, now it totally, I think there are versions of Christianity that better embody the teachings of Jesus than other versions. Absolutely. But it's, it's fascinating to me that those are still the issues 
yeah. um, and and that we either um, adhere to these things with such angry rigidity or such open-minded flexibility that they've lost their ability to be a, a beautiful counterculture in either direction. Yeah. Now, some are going to disagree with that, of course. I'm just thinking out loud about how that challenges me. Because what's counter, what's counter to my view of sex? What's counter to my view of wealth? What's counter to my view of power? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if this, if this was distinct about the early church, and, and I mean distinct in a beautiful way. I don't mean distinct in a, oh, this is the grossest thing I've ever heard way, like you find in so much American evangelicalism. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that we had that episode a while ago um, with the sex therapist that everybody got mad at me and Bonnie about. Oh, Celeste. And yeah, what was that? Yeah. I remember one that. of the Celeste? things that she said that was really, that I took away for, and it's it's not a, it's nothing that's that profound, but it, it stuck with me was, she was talking about how sex is not a need. Um you know, it's, a th- it's something that we want and that we enjoy and that we experience, but it's not a need. Like you need oxygen, you need water, but you don't need sex. But we uh, we treat it like a need hmm. on both on both positive and really negative or yeah. in a positive thinking way and in a negative thinking way. We right. And so and we do that with wealth and power too, or we kind of make it these like the things that we yeah. need. Yeah, and, and it's an interesting, it do, patience, the idea of patience is, is really counter to that like you know the idea of waiting and being patient versus the the hunger of need is they're very counter ideologies this whole thing opens like a gazillion questions oh then there's big questions about judgment there's big questions (laughs) about sin uh being saved like we were talking the other day with uh kevin about being saved from or Right. I mean, this opens up questions about all of that because the questions about evangelism and why evangelism has been such a big component of our faith for so long is because of that really big judgment sin conversation and, and saving the world. And um, well, it's it it's, 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 it's eschatological. The reason we're to evangelize the nations is because Jesus said the gospel must go forth to all the nations before he returns. So it's part of this dispensational framework yeah. that says we have a job to do. Like, and I and I was a part of organizations that said we're going to fulfill the Great Commission in this generation. What they meant is that every single person on earth had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Yeah. And um, which you know seems like a lot of pressure, <laughs> but but. <laughs> You know, so many of Paul's, but particularly Jesus's metaphors about the kingdom were agricultural. Mm. And, and I mean, I mean, think about what's my responsibility um, as a kingdom person or as someone who wants to be a kingdom person, right? Um, I look around and I see weeds, but Jesus is constantly saying, look, look for the weeds in your own heart before you deal with any weeds out there. Um, I want to pull weeds, um, and, and there's some biblical permission given to the community that there are some acts 
of a repetitive and public nature that malform a community that have to be dealt with. Yeah. But it's it's not but it's not an ultimate judgment, it's the hope of restoration, right? It's, right. The, it's the going one to one and then bringing someone and then yeah. there's even and then, patience and, in that idea. Yes, exactly. Exactly, there's patience in Man, that Man, it's idea. such a, this, yeah. I feel like this could be a whole series. Isn't um, it wonderful? So I'm, I, I've, yeah. I, have this, I have this parable in the back of my mind and I pick up this book and I'm like, holy moly. Does this thing go together? So, anyway, I do. I know I've done a ton of talking, Timothy, but it was so it it, it captured my imaginings, um, because I want to live as if the kingdom is slow, hidden, and inexorable; that it does not rely on my moral goodness today. It does not need my allegiance. I am totally disposable um, in a liberating way, in a liberating way, not in a shame way, but in a liberating like, oh, um, I want to live in a way that doesn't manage the outcomes, that doesn't feel in a rush to leave an impact on the world that just simply forsakes the American dream for the kingdom dream. Yeah, right? I mean, Which I was is... just having this conversation two nights ago trying to figure out what church is supposed, to, like we're trying to figure out as the pandemic is starting to wind down. Like I'm I'm 50% vaccinated now and, you know, the vaccines are rolling out. We're, there's an end in view and life is going to somewhat go back to normal and trying to figure out we've had a year to reflect on what church means and what church should be and if church is relevant and all of this stuff. And, oh. you know, as we've talked about, this has been a revelatory season for the church exposing so much and for our nation exposing so much and what is important. And, and, and this, this, what you just brought was unknowingly central to that conversation because we are trying to figure out how as a community do we exist in our town and what that's supposed to look like and what is ministry, you know, when I'm talking with my friend about young life and stuff, what is that supposed to look like? And right. Um, it's all, I don't know. I was thinking about the patience thing and this is such a dumb example, but I always think about this and there's that movie dogma that Kevin Smith made Yeah. and it's fairly heretical and very vulgar. <laughs> so don't, I'm not recommending it. that everybody goes and watches it, but uh, Alanis Morissette plays God though, right? Alanis Morissette is God, and I, and it's kind of an interesting depiction of God. It's thought-provoking, but Chris Rock plays the 13th disciple who was left out of the um, Bible because he's, he's black. <laughs> and uh, he comes down, he's walking with these guys through whatever, and so they're sitting out one night, and they ask him what Jesus was like. They're like, hey, man, what was Jesus like? And he says that... Um, they would sit around the campfire and they would all just be kind of doing what friends do, especially friends who are journeying around. They'd just be talking about like life and what they're doing and that kind of stuff. And they said that Jesus just loved to sit there silent and listen to people. Like he just really dug humanity and like really was like loved to listen to their stories and that kind of stuff. And there's something about that that always sat with me because it's in, mm. in a weird way you can picture the way you're describing him. Like, an, this nomadic guy who said like don't go tell people about this miracle that I just did and was really invested in his community and was really invested in the 
uh, the immediate with the, with one another and talking about all this stuff. And there's something that's really profound about this guy that was really about a God, about God being so invested and so interested and so like patient and curious about human about humanity. There's yeah. something to that that I think is really actually kind of profound and interesting to That's really think cool, about. man. There's also a big rubber monster made out of poop that was called the Golgotha monster and that kind of stuff too. So it's really great. I'm not great. recommending everybody goes and watches it, but there's some there was things that stuck with me for some reason. Yeah, no, that's so interesting, man. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful image. But you know, when we're when we're talking about how to relate so we had ellen's really articulate thoughts i just don't see anything in there about becoming a movie mover or shaker for the sake of the field what i see in there is if you are a mover and shaker then do it in a way that's far different you know so paul will counsel stay where you are in life Mm. you don't have to you don't have to go up or down just stay where you are Stay Gosh, where God is planted. So many you. questions, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and who know? I mean, anyway, I just love I love this image of the patient ferment that that the kingdom is advancing, <laughs> and my job is to be formed into the kind of person who, through their life, um, and sometimes their talking, um, offers an alternative to the world. Yeah. You know, and uh, um, I, I've I've been personally on the parts of that that are good, and I've also been on the parts of that that are that bring shame to Jesus. You know what I mean? I've I've been both, and um, and 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 that he is he is patient <laughs> even with us. You know, yeah, um, to use us however he does in the midst of our own brokenness and journey and failure and whatever. That's so fascinating because it's all so intentional in a world where it is established that there is someone, something else at play that is, you know, affecting and effecting our culture and our world. But that God is still, while that is happening, that there is an evil one at play, that there is a lot of intent behind, like what's happening, like what God is doing. There's still, it's still. Does that make yeah. sense? Like, yeah, it's not like God's just sitting back to being like, "Good luck, guys." Like, there's an evil one at play here, and I'll come in yeah. at the end. Um, good luck. Yeah, go for it. Right. Oh, that's so beautiful, Tim. Yes, the hope. And this is so good because I was taught, again, eschatologically, that the world was going to get worse. And so it's going to hell in the handbag and every generation is worse. And that's not true. At it's all. always been this bad and it's always been <laughs> this good. We're growing and improving and we're just as awful as we always have been. And both yeah. are true. Both are true. There isn't this great downward spiral. It's just the human spiral. We're just able to hurt larger and larger portions of our you know, human population at a time, but, um, there, the sex and money and power have always been the issues. It just, (laughs) we can do more damage now with our tech. And, um, and I just thought that was so profoundly reassuring because Tim, what you're saying 
is it looks like evil is winning. It looks like I have to be in fervent activism because holy hell, there's nothing else that's going to change this. And I, and I think there's some truth to that. Jesus isn't teaching us to be passive in the face of evil. But there is a, a, fr- a frenetic hopelessness that characterizes much of what we do in Jesus's name that, that, you know, Hey, we're going to do this big thing. Jesus, come on, come on, come on. Bless it. Bless it. Bless it. Bless it. Bless it. And, um, I, I don't know. I think, I think there's a, there's a way to work in the world that comes from that sort of patient, let them grow together. Now that doesn't well, that's the mean, yeast, again, right? That's the, yes. yeast That's also yes. part of this. Like the, yep. cause I think about that patient community together doing this patiently, living together, growing together, being transformed together, and then what that looks like at, in a larger community. Yep. Like, yep. Well, and, and one more thing about COVID, and this was from the book, um, and then and then we're done. I didn't realize I'd, I'd rambled on so long. What was uh, on here? I had no clue. Um, but, you know, we've, have, we've had a year... And the fascinating thing has been how much time and energy we have spent uh, trying to connect people to the community rather than figuring out ways to help the people who needed help. In other words, how much even in our declining budgets and, you know, man and woman power hours, um, was still dedicated to screens versus, hey, how do we, in, you know, with great ingenuity, think about, okay, the, the this pandemic is affecting these people disproportionately. How do we help? Do you know what I'm saying? Even yeah, then, our idolatry was revealed. We just thought, how can we have a cooler online experience yeah. versus how do we genuinely be helpful? And I know that's such a cliche thing to say but reading this it just struck me it never occurred to me that's the foremost question what i was talking about and i was consulting with churches about or doing whatever was okay how do we how do we do podcasts and how do we live stream and how do we and my goodness what a what an ass i am um it never just dawned hey how do i extend kindness to my neighbors right now uh and do that as a church um or how do we form people who are like that? That like like in the Roman Empire, everyone else left when the plague happened. They rushed in. Yeah. Would I be willing to get COVID for the sake of serving my neighbor? You know, they were, they were, and they counted it. Not all of them, but they're recorded as counting it joy hmm. to do so. And all I've done is just spent making sure I enforced my rights. You know? Well, I've spent all my time complaining about the weeds. Oh, that's good. That's good. Both very fruitful endeavors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, yes, and I can too, man. Because there's, they're just, the problem though, is once I start complaining there, then I, then I just have to weed my heart. Right? Yeah, because no, I just, just rile myself up to no end, to no good to no good end. Yeah. 
So I want to start asking questions about how do we form a small group of people and how do I get formed with and by a small group yeah. of people to become the kind of person that would be willing to get COVID, not irrationally and dumb like Jesus yeah. is my vaccine. But Discernment's I mean, still the key to the... Well, yeah, we're not. Called, we're, yeah. yeah, it's not. It's not just reckless like disregard. I mean, we don't. <laughs> Jesus was clear. We don't test God like that. Um, but if it were, <laughs> you know, hey, this woman is has she's coughing. She's got a fever. She needs a ride to the hospital. Yeah. Um, would I be willing to take her? Would I? Would yeah. I even? Would I even pay attention to notice? You know, it's becoming those kinds of people. Anyway, all right. We're done. <laughs> We're done. Too much, too much conviction. We're done. We're done. Timothy, last thoughts. No, I mean I have a gazillion questions from this, but they're all multiple hour long conversations. I'm sure. Isn't it wonderful? It is. I feel I constantly through the whole Sermon on the Mountain, even with this, like I feel I just always feel on the cusp of like revelation you know what i mean like i feel like i'm getting to peek behind the curtain and be like oh that's what it is oh that's cool and then then i'm back into like the you know seeing all the ding-dongs doing their thing and then i come back and i look behind the curtain again i'm like oh that's cool (laughs) you know you know your your brain it's kind of like the on the tip of your tongue thing where you're like it's just yeah it's just a little bit out of reach but you're just like i i can kind of remember i can kind of taste it it's like, that's how I feel with all this, where it's like everything lines up so well, links so well. You see Jesus being so intentional and doing such great work of trying to teach us how to coexist and love each other and be effective and affective. And, uh, and it just feels, I've just been so indoctrinated with a different version that it's, it's so hard to be undiscipled and mm. then find and figure out how to be rediscipled. Mm. Good last words, Timothy. And with that, friends, we will close. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us through an (laughs) hour-long episode. It is a great honor to do this together with you. Until next time, friends. Thank you for listening to this conversation. The Vox Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Vox Podcast. You can also engage with the hosts on social media at facebook.com backslash Vox Podcast, on Instagram at Vox Podcast, and on Twitter at Mike Erie. Thank you for walking this road with us.